Now, we're going to look at Acts 15 tonight. Let me recap a little bit. Last time we finished chapters 13 through 14, which closed out with Paul and Barnabas returning from the first missionary journey to report to the Antioch church all that God had done, particularly praising God for opening the door to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And most everybody in here is Gentiles, and we need to be very thankful God opened that door. Now, as we begin chapter 15, we find the disciples faced with false doctrine and how they handled the problem. Now, as we get into this false doctrine issue, let me tell you, false doctrine is everywhere today. Do you know why we teach the Bible on Wednesday nights? One reason is so that you will know your Bible. Because the more you know it, the less uh, the chance that you're going to be deceived by false doctrine. It's people who don't know their Bible that are suckers for every cult, every false teaching, every wind of heresy that blows through. If you don't know your Bible, you're not going to catch it. But if you know your Bible, you can't be deceived. So that's why one of the reasons we we do this on Wednesday nights. Um, Now, so we're going to see how they handled the problem of false doctrine, starting at verses 1 and 2. And certain men, now if you've got a pen, uh, you might want to underline certain men in your Bible because these are the culprits. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, quote, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, what are the next four words? You cannot be saved. Uh Uh-oh. That's false teaching. Now these certain men were probably the same certain men who came from James and the Jerusalem church mentioned by Paul in Galatians 2 verse 2. And here's that verse. For before certain men came from James, he, that, and he, the he here is Simon Peter, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, when, when these men came from the Jerusalem church, from James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, when they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself from the Gentiles in the church, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now here's where you see Simon Peter weakening and caving into peer pressure. Because Simon Peter knew, uh, you know what? God loves everybody and I'm to fellowship with everybody and what God has cleansed, don't call it common. But here he is, and he's at the Antioch church, and he's eating with Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, here comes these heavy-duty Jerusalem Jewish Christians to visit. And that's why it says they're from James. And when Peter saw them, he immediately got up from the table he was at with the Gentiles and moved his food over to another table where the Jews were. Uh Uh-oh. Now, we know where to go with that, don't we? So, Paul saw this, just for the record, this isn't in the notes, but just so you'll know. Paul saw this and faced him down. And and let me just paraphrase it. Peter, what in the world do you think you're doing? You know better than this. You know the blood of Jesus covers everybody, and we're all one in him. What are you doing, dude? And Paul faced off the mighty apostle Peter. And let him have it. Now, that's just for the record. Now, back to the Jerusalem church. It says they came from James. This James is the Lord's half-brother. Remember, I showed you last time. He is now the leader of the Jerusalem church because the apostle James has been murdered by Herod. He was the first martyr among the apostles, James. So the half-brother of Jesus, because Jesus didn't have any whole brothers. You know why? Because God only begot one. And so everybody else is half-brothers, half-sisters, whatever. Now, the Jerusalem church he led was the mother church of the early church at that time. The Jerusalem church was, was the, the big one. Now, this James was known for his praying and fasting, as well as for the sternness of his Christianity. It was this James who had written the first New Testament epistle bearing his name, the book of James. You know, it's... It's this James who taught us about prayer, 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much and releases great power, dynamic in its working. That came from James. He was known as old camel knees because his knees were so calloused from being in the place of prayer. Isn't that powerful? But he was stern and he was, he could be very legalistic. Now, there remained a problem in the Jerusalem church, deeply entrenched in the DNA of that Jerusalem church. They were anti-Gentile. And when these certain men visited the Antioch church, the Jewish members of that church were instantly accepted by them. But when the Gentile members said, hey, bro, good to have you. Thanks for visiting our church. These certain men refused to have anything to do with them. You ever felt that from believers? This is what you don't want to be as a church. I don't care if people walk in with purple hair, pink hair, blue hair, dress nice, dress badly. I don't care what your skin color is, what your educational background is. I don't care how much money you make or don't make. Everybody is one in Jesus Christ. There's no male or female, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ. But this Jerusalem church had not caught up with the revelation of what Jesus had really done when it came to the Gentiles. So when they were asked why they shunned the Gentile Christians, they had a devastating answer. The Gentiles had not been circumcised. Now what this did, when the Gentiles heard this, it placed their entire conversion in question. These men brought great confusion to the Antioch church. And the Antioch church was thrown into into turmoil here because false teaching always does that. When it's sound teaching, there's great peace and favor and blessing on a church. But when somebody brings in false doctrine, it always causes the waters to be troubled. It always upsets people. It causes questions. It causes debates. And so they, they brought turmoil and trouble and doubt into this Antioch church. Now, the word for false teachers of this stripe is Judaizers. Judaizers taught that you had to combine faith in Christ with the law of Moses. Now, Paul wrote the book of Galatians to expose and rebuke Judaizers. It's to the Galatian Christians who had been attacked by Judaizers It's to them, Paul said, who has bewitched you? That you have so soon departed from the faith that I taught you. They were bewitched by the Judaizers. You got to mix Moses with Jesus. It's not faith alone. It's faith plus works. So the theological bomb exploded in the Antioch church. This was a direct attack on the salvation by faith and faith alone, which was Paul's endless mantra. If you heard Paul, he was going to say it. It's by faith alone. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That was Paul's mantra. And it also attacked the oneness of the body of Christ because it was saying Jews were better than Gentiles. So this was flat out false teaching And Paul wasn't going to have any of it. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means they duked it out theologically, not physically, and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, the phrase no small dissension is from two, two Greek words, meaning a standing up. Paul stood up to them and locked horns in a heated dispute. See, Paul was not politically correct, and neither am I. And I don't think you should be. If you're politically correct, you're not biblical. Because if somebody walked in here and started teaching false teaching, I would, I would, there would be no small dissension (laughs) between me and them. Because I'm called to to guard you as the sheep. The sheep that God, and I'm a sheep too. Let's all say, right? We're all sheep. But God's called me to be an under shepherd to be sure that you are not attacked successfully by false doctrine. So I teach you the Bible all the time, continuously. 
Um, anyway, it was Paul's place. He was right to get in their face and say, what are you doing? This is wrong. The Judaizers thought Paul was a dangerous heretic, but he thought the same thing about them. So Paul and Barnabas were sent to the Jerusalem church to obtain a final answer from the top church leadership. What says the Lord to this church eldership? Verse three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused what, everybody? Great joy to all the brethren. So as they journeyed to Jerusalem to get with James and all the rest of the elders and all the big guns, Paul had no intention of being quiet along the way about how mightily God had moved amongst the Gentiles and that huge numbers of them had been saved. Paul was all in for the Gentiles being saved. Notice that the poison of the Judaizers was nowhere to be found in Phoenicia or Samaria. They all rejoiced at what God had done for the Gentiles. So verse 4, they arrived. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles, and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. Now, I feel something from that verse. I see that in Phoenicia and Samaria, they they were received with great joy, with fanfare. They were really received. Hallelujah, here's here's the apostles. They've been preaching to the Gentiles. Glory to God for what God's been doing. But I sense a, a more icy reception in Jerusalem. It's cooler. There's not the joy. Um, it's more of a polite, reserve reception. Paul and Barnabas were given a hearing. Well, anytime you're given a hearing, you've been received coolly. Yeah, we'll sit here and listen to you. Do tell. Not hallelujah, glory to God, spill it out. Tell us what God's been doing. No, it was, we're all here listening. Give us your report. It was a hearing. I feel that from this verse. This was Paul's first, uh, third visit to Jerusalem since his conversion. And there was a deep-seated, I'm telling you the truth, deep-seated dislike for him in many quarters of the Jerusalem church. He was too zealous, too liberal for their taste. He should have been more Jewish. After all, didn't Paul used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees? Didn't he used to know the Bible? What's he doing going to the Gentiles and all this grace stuff and salvation by faith alone? We wish we, wish we had some way of reeling him in a little bit. He was not embraced with a great big bear hug. And so it's no surprise what happens next, verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe, so catch that, these are believing Jews who had been Pharisees, rose up saying, what do they say? It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They're teaching the same thing. They're teaching the same false doctrine that these certain men who came from the Jerusalem church were teaching at Antioch. They were echoing the same teaching. Now, these Pharisees had come to faith in Christ, but they remained legalistic at heart. It takes God a long time to get the world out of you. Whatever you went through, whatever you, you know, your training was, your belief system was, your philosophy was, your worldview was, when you get saved, you are saved. But it takes God years, if, if you're spending time in the Word, years to renew your mind. And get the stinking thinking out. Amen. How many of you know that's right? It, we're in a process, right? Yeah. Now, so these, these believing Pharisees were in a process and they were legalists still. They had refused to accept you could be saved by faith alone without obeying the law of Moses. And the necessity of righteousness by circumcision was at the core of their belief system. Went all the way back to Abraham. They believed you had to do this to be right with God. Now, folks, let me tell you, the stakes were really high in this meeting. Remember, the church had just launched. The church was baby. The church was embryonic. 
And now there is this major doctrinal issue that has already torn the Antioch church up until a definitive word is brought from God. And this message that you had to mix Moses with Jesus, if it had gained traction here, I'm going to say that it's possible there would have been no Christianity down the road. Not the one we know. Because if they had come out of this council with the big guns, James, Peter, John, Paul, all of them, the epistle writers, if they had come out from this conference with, well, we agree with these Judaizers, you do need to mix Moses with Jesus. I wouldn't be able to stand here on a Sunday and say, put your faith in Christ and you're saved. I would have to say, put your faith in Christ and do this and that and you're saved. So a lot was riding, well, major stakes were, were, were here. So if the Judaizers prevailed, salvation by faith alone would have died that day. Peter next stands up and he takes his stand, I love this, on the revealed will of God. Listen to Peter. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe first. Peter was the wall breaker. He brought the gospel to Cornelius' house, a house full of Gentiles, and the spirit fell on them and they got saved. That was the first. So Peter now is speaking from the revealed will of God. He says in verse eight, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. Everybody say he made no distinction. God doesn't see color. God doesn't see race. He made no distinction between us and them. And he purified their hearts by faith. Now, this is a personal testimony. Peter said, God revealed to me the will of God, that it was his will that the Gentiles receive. I had the vision of the sheep coming down and all those animals I'm never to eat. And God said, kill Peter and eat. And I said, no, I've never eaten anything that is wrong, that is, that is unkosher. And God said, what I have cleansed, don't you call common. And God told him that three times. And Peter went and preached to the Gentiles, refusing to look at them through a skewed prejudicial lens. So he gives this testimony, and nobody carried more authority than Peter at this time. He had not only been the lead disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry, but had been the one that God chose to first preach the gospel to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. And Peter saw firsthand the Holy Spirit fall upon them, just like on the day of Pentecost. So you can't argue with facts. Facts are facts, and they're stubborn. The message to the Judaizers at this meeting was that God was on the side of freedom, not bondage. Peter continued, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God? Now, I can just picture those Judaizers sitting there. They're being nailed. It is not going their way. And Peter looks at them now and says, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, these Gentile Christians, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. You see, prior to Jesus, folks, it's hard for us to imagine how much uh, the Old Testament folks were in bondage to the law. Right up to the time of Jesus, it's hard for us to imagine. The law had become an intolerable burden, a heavy weight. By the time Jesus came, just the Sabbath restrictions were impossible to bear. You were afraid to move lest you break the Sabbath law. And get this, there were 613 commandments of the law. 613 commandments to obey. I have trouble with 10. Can you imagine getting up? I mean, that's a book. That's a book of commandments, 613 of them. Can you imagine every day making sure you didn't break, going through 613 Who could bear that? Nobody. Thank God Jesus set us free from that. 
under the law. The good news was the blood of Jesus Christ had wiped the whole unmanageable mess away. Listen to Paul writing to the Colossian church. He says, Jesus wiped out. Everybody say wiped out. I love that. I mean, he just obliterated the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 613 of them, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love what he did to the devil, verse 15, having disarmed principality and powers, principalities and powers. He disarmed the devil. He made a public spectacle of the devil and his minions. That, that's the principalities and the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in heavenly places Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. He made a spectacle of them, a mockery of them, yeah. triumphing over them in his resurrection. Now look at verse 16. Paul says, so don't let anybody judge you in food. Now he's talking about the law here. In food, what you eat, in drink, what you drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward. He said to the Galatian church, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. And don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. What was the yoke of bondage? Righteousness by the law. If you live to be a million, you could never do enough to get yourself saved. That's the whole idea. So, so stand fast in the liberty that Christ, wherewith Christ has set you free. And don't allow yourself to be entangled. Now, Paul says you're no longer under the law. That could never make you righteous in the first place. It never could. So Jesus set us free. Now back to Simon Peter. He says to the gathered church leaders in verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they by faith alone. Folks, salvation is by grace alone. And it's hard for us, let me tell you. You think you fully believe that, and I, and I believe you do fully believe it, and so do I. But how often do we judge our righteousness by whether or not we've done the right thing or not? See, we're always convicted of sin. Have you ever been convicted of your righteousness? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made, say it with me, the righteousness of God in him. So Peter is saying the same way they got saved, that being the Gentiles, so have we. Salvation is by grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor. That means you didn't get something you deserved. Law put the load on man. Grace put the load on Christ. Law says do. Grace says done. So there's nothing we can ever do to add to the perfection of what Jesus already did. It's just a matter of receiving what he did. It took my brain years to really fully Embrace this, and there are times I still catch myself judging my righteousness based on my own actions instead of what I know he did for me. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent, so the Holy Spirit has fallen on this gathering now. And they listened to Barnabas and Saul declaring how many miracles. Now I'm reading verse 12 here. And they listened to Barnabas and Saul declaring how many, or Paul rather, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are doubling down now. And they're testifying to this, this mixed group how mightily God has moved amongst the Gentiles. And their testimony silences the crowd. And finally, James, who really was the ultimate authority figure in this gathering, 
because he was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was sort of the, the head duck here, okay? And he speaks. Now, he's about to launch into a quote from the Old Testament prophet Amos. But first, he says something very important, and I want us to catch what he says. Verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Everybody say take out. out. Now, when I say take out, you think of a fast food place. But let me tell you what it means in Bible theology. The word take out is from the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia, ekklesia. And it means called out ones. It means that God visits a group and he calls out of that group certain ones. See, you are a chosen generation. Are you ready? You didn't choose, you were chosen first. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then when it says a peculiar people in King James, that makes me think of weird. It doesn't mean weird. It means called out. See, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's dear son. He called you out to call you in. He never calls you out so you stand there looking stupid. He calls you out to call you in. He takes you out of one thing to bring you into another thing. And so James is saying, when Peter went to Cornelius' house and the door was open to the Gentiles, that was the beginning of God calling out from the Gentile world members of the ecclesia, the called out one. It's a beautiful truth. You are so called. You'd be sitting in darkness right now if God hadn't come knocking on your door and convicted you of sin. You know, you know Lazarus was totally helpless in that tomb. He couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't seek God. He was dead. And the voice called out to him. The voice. Same voice is going to call us out of the grave. The voice, Lazarus come forth, and a dead man got up. You were that dead in your trespasses and sins when the voice reached you, and you came out. And he called you out of darkness to go into his marvelous light and live as children of God. So James said, he's talking to these Jewish Pharisee believers saying, I want you to get a hold of what God is doing. I want you, you men to understand. Let me share with you what I see, James is saying. God is calling out the church from the Gentiles. And then he says, after that, he will turn his attention to the tabernacle of David. Because the Jews there have a concern. Well, if all this attention is going to the Gentiles, what about all the promises to the Jews? We don't like all this attention. What do you mean God's gone to the Gentiles and calling the Gentiles out and all this focus on the Gentiles? What about the promises made to our father Abraham all the way down to us? James is now going to talk to them. And verse 15, and with this, says James, The words of the prophets, and he's going to quote from Amos, agree, agree, just as it is written. Look at verse 16. After this, well, what's the this? The this is the calling out of the Gentile church. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll rebuild his ruins and I will set it up so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. With this, Amos, quote, James is comforting his Jewish hearers. 
He's telling them, this move of God amongst the Gentiles is not in any way a forsaking of the Jews. He hadn't left you, Jewish men. You, you say Pharisees. He hadn't left you. Now, he finishes with a great quote about the providence and wisdom of God. I love this. He says in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. You know what that means? Way, 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 way back, as far back in time as you can imagine or think, before the world was ever created, the universe ever was, there was the eternal God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. God saw the entire human drama from beginning to end. Before it ever began. God sees the beginning of a thing, or the end of a thing, before the beginning of a thing begins. That's why I say he never says, well, I'll be. And he never, ever says, oops, his ways are perfect. Nothing surprises God. He saw it coming. You're shocked when you got saved. Oh, my Lord, I've been saved. And people around you were really shocked you got saved. And you think God felt the same thing. But God said, I saw you coming the whole time. I saw you in Jesus before I said, let there be light. I know that's a mind bender. It puts your brain into a pretzel, but it's true. Known to God from eternity are all his works. God says, James wasn't at all surprised at the Jewish rejection of his Messiah, Jesus. God didn't say, can you believe Abraham's children are rejecting Jesus? God knew they were going to do it. Moses told them they were going to do it. Israel's rejection of the king, get this, merely enabled God to bring into being an alternate plan, the salvation of the Gentiles. But his original plans for the Jew will eventually come to pass once his purposes in the church are fulfilled. He hadn't left the Jews. That's why I say, uh, when you make a mistake and you mess up, now I'm not telling you to go do it so you can see grace manifested. But when you do make a mistake, God doesn't say, well, there it goes. What are we going to do now, Jesus? Well, Father, nothing. We're, we're, they, just, they just ruined everything. No, God comes in and works through your mistake. And he'll make even the wrath of man to praise him. So no wonder Paul would later exclaim in Romans, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You're never going to catch up with what God is really doing best thing you can do is get on the best inner tube of faith you've got and jump in the river and let the river carry you. That's what I'm doing. I'm flowing with the river. I'm, I'm just flowing with the river. I'm, I'm just a little tiny speck in, in the great big plan of God, but I'm doing my part. I'm just, I'm on the inner tube. I'm not on the bank watching everybody else go by. I have dived in. I'm in my inner tube of faith and I'm just being carried by the river of God's glory and God's moving. And I know where we're headed to the coming of Christ again. But until then, we're just going down the river. There is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of God. So now. Finally, James steps forward as the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he renders a final decision. He says in verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain, he's going to name three things, from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and blood. And those are in the same category. So, Idols, immorality, and blood. Now, let me talk about those for a minute so you can understand. His decision is filled with love. And the desire for Jew and Gentile to avoid unnecessarily offending each other. So his first decision was a spiritual issue. The Gentiles 
must abstain from eating meat offered to idols. And that kind of meat was routinely sold in Gentile markets all the time. To eat such meat was to the Jew idolatry and would cause them to stumble if they saw Gentile believers eating it. So Paul said, or this, 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 uh, these elders in the Jerusalem church said, so don't eat meat offered to idols. If you want to get along with the Jews, don't make them stumble. Live the law of love. The law of love says, I can, but I won't if it hurts you. Okay? So, second was a moral issue. The Gentiles should avoid sexual immorality. Many of them were brought up in a culture of wide tolerance of sexual, for sexual sin. Like our culture right now, we live in a pornographic culture. It, it is so sick, our pornographic culture. God's moral law must be obeyed. The elders decreed by the Spirit which meant sexual intimacy only between a husband and wife, period. Now, people come to me and they say, well, Pastor Jeff, um, you know, we're, we're living together, but, but we don't need a piece of paper. We had a time with God, and we, and we committed ourselves to God. And so we're married in his eyes. And I say, well... No, you're not. <laughs> and they say, oh, no, no, no. I mean, there was, there was such peace, and we just really felt his presence, and we're committed to each other. We did it in the presence of God. Why do we need a piece of paper? Let me just give you a little thought, and I'm going to leave it there. When they asked Jesus about divorce, he said, he started talking about giving the woman a certificate a writing, a certificate of divorce. And he said, Moses told you you could do it for any old reason because of the hardness of your heart. But he said, I say to you, you can't give her a certificate of divorce if there hasn't been sexual immorality. Amen. Now, I ask you this question. If it's just between you and God, no piece of paper is required. Why was Jesus talking about a piece of paper? A certificate of divorce. So clearly, Jesus was talking about the kind of marriage that was legal, where you got a certificate, or we would call it a marriage license. So how can, how can it be that you can just go to God and say, well, we're married because, because hey, we're just, we're just um, in love. Love does not sanctify wrong. Ooh, I just feel like I went where I maybe shouldn't have gone tonight. I'm feeling all kinds of tension in the room. I'm just asking you to pray about it. You, you go look, you've got a Bible. Go look it up. But, but, but I've had to answer these things because I've had people look right at me and say, hey, we're in love. We're in love. I say, if there's no certificate of marriage, watch how quick that love will go away one day. And when he or she realizes I'm not legally bound, I'm out of here. Okay, I'm moving on. It's just a thought. I want you to think about why would Jesus deal with a legal piece of paper if we don't need a legal piece of paper? Okay. And don't forget he did his first miracle at a wedding that was officially legal. I think I'm just going to change my message and stand right. I, we need to know these things, folks, because our culture is so sick and ill morally that if the church isn't careful, we'll be swept away in their error. And we can't go off in the culture's error, okay? Now, let me move on. Um, his third decision, decision was a ritual issue. The Gentiles must abstain from eating the flesh of animals that have been strangled and from eating blood. Meat in which blood remained was forbidden on the ground that the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's out of Leviticus. And the blood belonged on God's altar. That's the way they saw it. Now, 
please pay careful attention to what I'm saying next. This prohibition was advised to make fellowship easier between Jew and Gentile. It's the law of love. In another place, Paul writes about the need to walk in the law of love, which is to avoid unnecessarily offending a brother. So let me just read to you what he said, because this is good stuff. Paul wrote to the Romans, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, everybody read this next part with me, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the law of love right there. You just read it. Paul says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now let me give you an example. I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol. Never. Home, privately or publicly, I don't, I don't drink. Me and alcohol don't get along. I don't like it. God made coffee on the eighth day. And if coffee is wrong, I don't want to be right. But here's the deal. I don't drink. I mean, I just don't drink. I, I, I like having clear, a clear head, clear thoughts. It says, be sober, be vigilant. Um, I don't know how you do that with a clouded mind. Amen. Now, I'm not casting a, a, a noose on you by, by going in. I'm just talking about me, Jeff. There's another reason I don't drink. I, don't, I think the taste is an acquired taste. Until you acquire it, I think it all tastes wretched unless it's one of those drinks with so much sugar in it it's a debate whether or not you're high on sugar or high on alcohol that you know those drinks you pay $15 for anyway now um but we in our church we have a lot of people fighting alcohol we have celebrate recovery we have a lot of people who came under bondage to alcohol and they're fighting for their life Every day. Every day that they don't drink, it's a victory. Now, I don't want any of them to be able to say, well, I, you know, I was at a restaurant and I saw Pastor Jeff drinking. Because you know what they'll do? They'll go, well, if he can, then I can. And I don't want them to come up to me and say, now, Pastor Jeff, I know you don't do anything publicly, but do you drink privately? I'm just curious. I want to be able to say fully, truthfully, never. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. If I need to relax, I ride my bicycle. And I get those endorphins released. You know, those feel-good endorphins. And I feel like I've gone from this level of mood to this level of mood. Exercise does wonders. And I feel at peace after I've done it. I don't need a drink. I mean, I just don't need it. But it's the, the, the weaker brother principle is one of the reasons I don't. Although, if I had no, nobody in my church fighting alcohol, I still wouldn't do it. But that's in my head. You get it? I can, but I won't. You could turn me loose in a liquor store for three days. I would find the coffee pot. It just wouldn't tempt me. It just simply wouldn't tempt me. Or you could turn me loose in a tobacco factory. I could be there all year, and it wouldn't tempt me. But that doesn't mean I can't be tempted. Those things don't tempt me. But I'm not going to open that door. And, and you know, if you were to ask me, well, Jeff, what about me and drinking? I can tell you what I think. I would say, if you never drank again, you'd never miss a thing. Here's what I believe about drinking. If you get drunk, you might as well hang yourself. It's as bad as hanging yourself. The damage you're doing. But every sip you take of alcohol increases your chance of making a bad decision. Now, that's free. I'm just telling you what I think. 
How many people, if we were to ask the truth here, how many of you can honestly look back on your past and say, oh, I wish I could undo that night I drank. I wish I could undo that season in my life when I drank. I wish I could go back and never touch that stuff because I, I went where I shouldn't have gone and I did what I shouldn't have done. And it wasn't me. I read today. I read today. They interviewed a whole bunch of spring breakers. These kids from college, they interviewed them and, and they interviewed a bunch of them. And the percentage of young men and women who said, oh, I so regret what I did on alcohol on spring break. I'm going to be honest with you with what I read. A number of the girls said, I lost my virginity. I don't, don't even remember it. Alcohol. Well, again, I feel tension in the room. You know, if, if you and me went out and you ordered a wine, I, I, I love you. I'm not going to sit there and go, hey, wait a minute here. Uh-uh. This is Jeff. This is what I have come to for me. And I think also that I have the spirit of God. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> Tepid. That's, well, let me tell you what that is. I'm really going to think about this or, wow, I wish I'd stayed home tonight. <laughs> I love you no matter what you do. I love you. I'm just giving you my, my wisdom or my scruples. Okay. Now. James continues by saying, we're almost done. Everybody say, amen, hallelujah. We're almost done. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Here's what James is saying. Moses has preached everywhere. So Moses won't be the loser if the Gentiles, who never were his disciples, don't pay him allegiance. Verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, uh, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. Let me just zip through it because I want to get to how to know the will of God and we're done. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. Now look at verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those necessary, than these necessary things. And then the list again. Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now here's how to know the will of God, and I close. Note how they solved this major problem. First, there was the Spirit's witness. Everybody say the Spirit's witness. I love this phrase. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. We all know what that feels like. You make a decision, and the inner witness just fills you with peace. It seems good to the Holy Spirit. Every time I minister the Word of God, I always leave floating, feeling wonderful, because it was good to the Holy Spirit that I do this. But you can make a decision and suddenly the Spirit's peace is gone. And it doesn't seem good to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, here's the deal. Never move forward in a decision if the Holy Spirit removes his peace. No matter how right it looks. How sensible it seems. If the Spirit removes his peace, he's got his reasons. Second, 
they had the collective amen of the church leadership. If God is giving you a peace about a thing, he will also give the same peace to those you're accountable to. It says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. I can't tell you how many times people will come into our church. They come and they go. They're like, they're blown about by different winds here and there and everywhere. They'll come, they'll sit here for a while, they go somewhere else. They're, they're accountable to nobody, not to anybody. I will find out down the road that so-and-so or such-and-such has left. Um, and I find out through the grapevine. And, and, I find, and you can't have walk through hell with them. Buried their dead, married their living, counseled them through pain and heartache. And then they just go. They just go. You say, where, where are they? Well, I don't know. They're here and there. They're, they just left. And I think, I think where is accountability? Because God said he gave elders over you who watch over your soul. And I find that these people that consider themselves the most spiritual are the least accountable. That's free. Boy, I'm on a roll tonight. I am on a roll tonight. And we already know that they had the amen of the scriptures because James continually alluded to them. So say with me, the Spirit's peace, the, Spirit's peace. the confirming witness, the confirming witness. and the witness, the witness of the Word are three key features of God's guidance. So let's stand together, and I'm going to read the last verses, and then we're going, to, we're going to worship for a second. How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? Come on. All right. <laughs> Come back next week. I'll be more subdued. I'm still on an Easter roll. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also <clears throat> exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Notice, once the problem was solved, ministry flowed again. Father, we just thank you for your goodness, for your blessing. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word, the wisdom of its counsel. We thank you and we praise you and we bless you. Let's just lift our hands and worship him. Lead us, Jeff. Let's worship the Lord.